Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic is almost here, and we're hosting another live podcast at this year's event on Friday night, March 1st. The show starts at 6 p.m. at Remedy Brewing Company's 611 location, which is only a couple of blocks from the Sanford Center. The live show will be a fun night that includes our very own Upland Trivia Game with a guest panel made up of the one and only George Lyle, Mr. Tyler Webster himself, and of course, our own Scott Franzen, too. Plus, you get to be a part of this show and have a chance to win plenty of great prizes like a Chief Upland Vest, a Ruffland Kennel, Onyx Elite Memberships, and so much more. Bring your family, bring your friends, and come ready to heckle me, the host. It's a night of Upland fun, laughs, excellent beer, and food. Again, that's Friday night at Pheasant Fest. The show starts at 6 p.m. at the Remedy at 611 location. No reservations needed, just show up. All right, now it's time for today's show. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Waltons, Hoxie Native Seeds, Ready Rest, Aluma Trailers, and Huron, South Dakota. Today I'm sitting on the deck outside of one of the most iconic quail hunting lodges in America. Next to me is the Michael Jordan of Mississippi Quail Restoration, Mr. Jimmy Bryan, owner of Prairie Wildlife, and to his side, Todd Robinson, the operations manager. I do believe we are all in for a treat today. Our friends at Onyx Hunt are looking forward to seeing you at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They'll once again be hosting their after party called Offline at Pheasant Fest on Friday, March 1st at 9 p.m. at the Ram Coda's Grand Rushmore Hall. There'll be live music from the damn jammers and the chance to win some great Upland prizes with their public access pull tabs, drink free beer from Lining Kugels, and learn more about South Dakota's new public access to habitat program that's fundamentally changing how we all look at private land access. Entrance to this event is free for all Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic attendees. Free entrance, free beer, prizes, laughs, and plenty of smart talk. I hope to see you there at Offline at Pheasant Fest, brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I am Travis Frank. I am your host, and Brandon Morton, as always, produces this program, but Brandon is a long ways away from me right now. I am down in Mississippi. To my right is the legendary Mr. Jimmy Bryan, and to his right, my left, is Todd Robinson. Gentlemen, I believe I'm sitting in uh, the space of greatness right now. At least it, it feels that way, because... When I told people that I was coming down to Prairie Wildlife, everyone just raved. Wow, you guys are in for a treat. That is one amazing place. And to your credit, Mr. Jimmy, you have been awarded Conservationist of the Year, a very well-deserving title that I have now seen firsthand. Todd, I know you're, you've been a, a part of seeing this place become what it has become. Um, this lodge that you have built here has been awarded Lodge of the Year as well um, in the recent past. And it's, it's as far as hunting experiences go, I will just say that might be one of the nicest, most well-run places that I have ever seen. But with that, Mr. Jimmy, I, I have to ask, what is a better smell to you? The smell of gunpowder after you fire a shotgun or a cigar? Uh, I'd say gunpowder second to the cigar. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what do you have right there? What What is your flavor? What is your cigar of choice? It's a V07. It's a cigar we had made for us. Really? Yeah. Where do you get those made? Uh, Dominican Republic, I think. Okay. Or maybe Nicaragua, I'm not sure. A local tobacco is here set me up with somebody. Gotcha. So I apologize in advance if I ask you questions that I should not ask. I won't, ask, I won't answer them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because like, if you ask somebody how many head of cattle you have, you know, they'd say right. you never ask a man how many head of cattle. It's like you don't ask somebody how much money they have in their bank account. But to really grasp 
this place here, I have to ask some questions to try to paint the picture with words of where we are and how big this place is and what you've done to it. So is that fair? That's fair. Okay. And at the top of the uh, the program, I said, I believe we're sitting next to the Michael Jordan of Mississippi quail because your story is that great. And obviously winning conservationist of the year backs that up. Um, what does that title mean to you? Well, it was, it was quite an honor. It was totally unexpected. Uh, I've said several times, I didn't think it was well-deserved, but I was awful proud to get it and I'm proud of it. And, uh, and, I'm a big fan of quail feather. That's, that's who gave it to me. And the local biologist for them is the one that put me up for it. And uh, it, was, it was a surprise and an honor. Yeah. Well, um, I have now been shown around this place, and I've seen the work that's gone into it. We're going to try to understand that and, and explain that because this place has been kind of given the, uh, this is what needs to happen to bring quail back down here in the south. Um, Mr. Jimmy, can I ask how old you are? Did what? Can I ask how old you are? Uh, 86. 86. So you've seen a lot of changes on this landscape in your lifetime. Yep. Born and raised here? Yep, all my life. Where are we at right now? Where are we at in Mississippi? West Point. West Point, Mississippi. So somebody that doesn't know where this is in the state? We're in the northeastern part of the state. Northeastern part of the state. <clears throat> Interestingly, the first Grand National Quail Hunt was held in West Point back in 1890-something. How many years have you been quail hunting? Well, I went through two cycles. I started quail hunting in high school, and I hunted up until 64. And at that time, I was building a house, building a business, fourth child coming, and my dog got run over. So I didn't quail hunt again for another 20 years. Really? Just, I never had time for it. Okay. And then I decided I wanted to quail hunt again, and it bought me two real nice dogs, but I didn't have any quail. I had three or four coveys on this 3,200 acres. So <clears throat> I decided, everybody said, well, why don't you go to Texas? I said, well, I don't live in Texas. And so I got with Dr. Westberg at Mississippi State, spent the day with him. And when I got through, I said, Wes, you've told me I need to make this place like it was in the 50s. He said, that's exactly right. And if you look back on it, when I came up, you had a lot of small farms. Uh, Four-row equipment was big equipment. Uh, we were still using mules back then. <clears throat> had all these tenant farmers that had uh, gardens and small patches around them. Every field had turn rows. Today, nobody has turn rows. They farm with 12 and 16-row equipment. So there's no, no place for quail to live. And, <clears throat> and once they explained all this to me, you started looking around and you realized. So then we started, we started putting habitat in. And just, it was an awful slow process, but, but it finally took traction. And we're nowhere near where we want to be, but, but we made, made good strides. So if you're hearing some ambience outside of our conversation here, we're sitting on the deck right now overlooking, um, is this, do you have a name for this? Is this a pond here? They call it the Horseshoe Pond because of the shape of it. Yep. And, uh, and I'm told that there's some pretty good sized bass in it, not as big as some of the other uh, ponds on the property, but how big did the bass grow in the horseshoe here? Our uh, gamekeeper caught one last year at 14 pounds. In the horseshoe? Yeah. Well, it was in another lake, but it came out of this lake. We we took these caught bass in and put them in stock in another lake. Did you? We've had we've had several 10, 12 pound bass caught out here. Wow, that's amazing. I did bring my fishing poles, and I have been meaning to try to make a cast, well, yeah, but yeah, we've been a lot preoccupied since we've been. A lot of regulars come here, and they spend most of their spare time out fishing. Do you ever fish it? I used to. I used to fish a lot, but a lot of things I don't do anymore. What do you What do you like to do? When you wake up, what's on your heart, first and foremost? What do you want to do if you have your choice? Well, first thing is eat breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I come out here seven days a week. Seven days a week. Yeah. And uh, to mainly watch these guys to be sure they're doing their work. Yeah. He's pretty good at that. Yeah. I've, I've got another business I spend a little time at, but I got a good manager. Okay. But I I get up, I, I, I used to get in at six in the morning, now I get in at eight and uh, leave about dark every, every day. day. And you've always got something to do in the office, and I just love riding around the place. 
And like right now, they're burning. I'm trying to press them to burn more. And I, I just find something to do every day. So, uh, at, yeah, over your shoulder here, it's this. It, the sun has already set. The silhouette of the trees, and I can see smoke and yeah. fire. They got behind. Got a nice what are fire. they doing? Do what? What are they doing back there right now? They're, they're burning. We try to burn the place every two or three years. It's kind of regenerate things, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's one of the. One of they say one of the best tools for, for quail, turkey, and anybody. Gotcha. We burn and then we dish some. And, and, uh, when so when we got here a couple of days ago, they were burning different parts of a field. Now, Todd, maybe you want to jump in here and and give us a little bit of an explanation as to what is happening. It's it's February right now. You guys are still hunting, right? You know. So you were talking about what they were burning. A few days ago ties back into what he was saying go back to the 50s when every field had a field border and and at that time farming was so much harder due to the the resources they had so they took greater advantage of the good ground and and let the lesser ground in their mind grow up and that's where the quail lives so so what you saw burning a few days ago what we call field borders and and we take the less profitable sections of the ground uh, maybe along a creek bed or maybe up under a hedgerow or something like that, and we take that out of production. And then we establish native grass in there. And so they were burning that grass right here. It's So we're in the second week of February, first week of February, and we're burning that right now for a couple of reasons. The first run is to control the grass because it, it will take over if you let it. But also when we run fire through there, there's a natural seed bank in the ground that a lot of times doesn't get disturbed due to, uh, it, it gets no sunlight at the very base of the ground. So it's because the canopy above, right? The, the canopy above and and the competition of of everything else sucking the nutrients. So when we burn through this, it will kind of spark that that native seed bank and and just kick us all off, and it's a head start to the spring. Gotcha. So we, we try to burn it kind of on a three year rotation. Okay. So what what he's saying by that three year rotation is it, it's not that we burn once every third year. We've got the entire farm segmented off in different quadrants and and so we'll like postage stamps yeah yep. and and you can ride through the property and you'll see these these white plates with a, a number painted on them and, and it'll be 21 22 23 24 that's the year different signs mean different things but but we'll burn it one year we may spray it another year we may strip disc it another year and so when he's saying every three years something gets burned every spring we do some burning in the fall but we do it in, in quadrants for a couple of reasons. One, to keep it manageable for, for our staff, but also to keep the cover there. If you burn the entire thing, then it's an all-you-can-eat buffet for predators. And so we burn in sections so that the, the rule of thumb we use here is if you can throw a baseball on a straight line from burnt habitat to full habitat, then a quail can get there without getting caught by a predator. Wow. Um, <clears throat> there's also agriculture on this property i see what do you plant in those fields uh corn and soybeans we don't farm anymore we quit farming three years ago we we've got a a really good farmer that farms for us okay our equipment was getting old and we weren't farming that much acreage so the lots and and probably getting help too so made a deal with him he does a great job okay he he does a little spraying and stuff you know first on, on the side so I, I apologize if you already answered this, Mr. Jimmy, but um, when did you decide to take this land here and get to work to bring quail back? And at that time, were there any quail left here? Well, when I got Dr. Berger over here, he said, tell me how many, we had a 32-acre block. He said, how many coveys of birds you've seen? He said, not what somebody else seen, what you've actually seen. I said, well, three and maybe four at most. On how big of an area? 3,200 acres. 3,200 acres. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he said, but we can, we can, that's the population you can start with, and we can, we can, you know, reestablish quail on the place. Yeah. And uh, honestly, after about third year, I, I was about ready to wring my hands and, and tell him to forget about it, because I said, I'm going to start releasing birds. He said, no, it's, it's going to happen. And the next year, our population went up. And during all that time, we were putting in hedgerows, planting grass, and uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it just all of a sudden we just had a little little explosion of quail. 
what was the biggest factor that you found or learned that really attributed to the explosion? It was all habitat and habitat management. We went and planted grass. We planted around, around along the creeks. We planted a repairing deal with trees for water control, and then we planted all of our all of our fields that would qualify. And we, they actually came here and did a study on a planting a field boarding. It's called CP thirty three, I think. And after they did the study, they wrote the program, and I signed up everything that would qualify. This was a, a government-assisted program that they pay an annual rental rate. And at that time, the rental rate was equivalent to what you'd make farming. It goes up and down, but but uh, it worked. Uh, we could see an increase in birds as soon as we did that. And in that, you planted shrub cover for protection. And uh, it's it's been a good program for it. Gotcha. And does the state still offer similar programs? Yeah, but a CP33 is still there. That's one of the things the quail family is doing. They, they, they're hiring 25 or 30 biologists right out of college every year, putting them out in the field to work with farmers, system and conservation work. So the, the college has obviously been an asset to you guys, right, to your well, program out here? We've, we've, we've reciprocated with them a lot. They do, they do a lot of research over here. And not only on quail, on, on everything. Sure. They did dick sickle research, butterflies, rats, owls. It doesn't, so it's, you it's had, laboratory for you had what you thought, 3,200 acres, three coveys, four coveys on yeah. the property when you started. What was What has the peak been that you've seen now? Well, they say that we had 80 coveys to bird. 80, eight zero. Yeah. But I never did believe it. But they do cover counts. And Why didn't you believe it? I, I, well, if I had 80 covers, I'd be seeing them every day somewhere. Yeah. But we probably had 40 covers of birds at that time. When was that? When was that? Was, that was in the, probably the mid-90s. Then Dr. Berger got busy. I got busy. We, let, we didn't do any maintenance. And birds just disappeared. I had a cover too. I could find every time I went hunting. Every year, and then all of a sudden they weren't there anymore, and we it grew up. It wasn't habitat farm, so you you've got to have the right habitat, and then you got you got to manipulate it. You got to keep too much uh, overstory coming up, and and uh, work the land where you regenerate it. And it's 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 not an easy project, and and most people that try it get tired of it after a couple of years. Well, it sounds like you almost did. Yeah, well, it, we we did, yeah, and it cost us. And then I came back, and this land right here where the lodge is, I leased. We were farming it at that time, and I leased it to the university for an FAA project. They planted in native native grasses. They come up with a program to use around small airports. It would not attract flights of of geese and starlings. It would just attract low flying birds. Then they'd harvest it for biofuel. And the program worked, but the problem with us is planted the grass too thick for biofuel. So now we're systematically we'll we'll finish that this year, going in and spraying it out in the summer. Then we burn it the next year and plant forbs in there. So we got a mixture of grass and and wildflowers, and a better habitat for quail and bare ground for them to move around in. We learn something new every year. Sounds like it. What in the world keeps you this motivated for a bird that fits in the size of your hand? You know, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I just fell in love with them. Yeah. And to me, there's no better sport than walking behind a good bird dog. It's not a matter of killing birds. It's just a matter of being out there and doing it. It's a, and it's an age-old it's an age old uh, sport. We've lost a lot of it, but it's coming back pretty good now, I think. You think it's coming back? Oh, I, I think no doubt it is. What tells you that? Well, well, the first thing you see all these these shooting preserves that have come up, and uh, then we've got a lot of people interested. And, and a guy might not have but a hundred acres that would fit, but it might hold one or two covers of birds. And I found out this that South Georgia is a paradise. They got four hundred thousand acres owned by billionaires. They spend one hundred and fifty dollars an acre a year on maintenance and uh, predator control, and they've got birds everywhere. And I asked Dr. Parker, I said, we're doing the same thing, but we're not gaining. Well, research has proved that 
25% of the birds you raise go somewhere else. Then all you're doing is exporting birds. You got nobody that, that imports to you. Huh. Down there, if you lose 25%, you might get 30% from somebody else. Yeah. So, uh, and it'll never be back like it was in the old days. So, I mean, God just gave us quail. But I, I never saw a deer or turkey. We lived on the river in high school. Never saw a deer or turkey anywhere. We hunted everywhere, fish, traps. Uh, all of a sudden, we had this big movement to bring deer in and bring turkeys in. Did nothing for quail. And we did nothing to have them, and we did nothing to keep them. A question that we get asked regularly is, where is a good spot to pheasant hunt in South Dakota? Well, Huron is an excellent place to hunt pheasants. They have over 30,000 acres of publicly accessible hunting land within 20 miles of their city limits. They also have five dog-friendly hotels in town, and the Huron area is home to more than 10 different lodges and outfitters that are all ready to make your hunting experience memorable and turnkey. Huron is regularly ranked first or second in pheasants harvested in the state of South Dakota each year, and their hosts pride themselves on treating guests like family. If that isn't enough, you're also invited to participate in Huron's 27th Annual Ringneck Festival and Berg Dog Challenge, October 31st through November 2nd. It's a six-man competition that you will never forget. So I guess to answer the question about a great spot to hunt pheasants in South Dakota, I'd suggest looking at one of the many options in Huron. Visit the Huron team at Pheasant Fest this year, or check them out at HuntHuronSD.com. If there's one thing that we live for here at The Flush, it's bird hunting. And we all know that you can't have good bird hunting without good habitat. Few people know more about bird habitat than Hoxie Native Seeds. Family-owned and operated, Hoxie Native Seeds has provided bird hunters across the Midwest with countless acres of premium native habitat mixes sourced straight from their own fields in the heart of Iowa. Perennial food plots, quail mixes, pheasant mixes, CRP, even dog-friendly seed mixes. To learn more, go to hoxienativeseeds.com. That's H-O-K-S-E-Y nativeseeds.com to order your own premium hunting habitat mixes today. Flush Nation, are you tired of lugging your shotgun through the fields, feeling the strain on your back and shoulders? Well, no more. Introducing ReadyRest, the ultimate shotgun rest designed for hunters like you. ReadyRest is a game changer that lets you carry your shotgun effortlessly for hours without fatigue setting in. ReadyRest lets you go longer and put on more boot miles. Whether you're a seasoned hunter or a beginner just starting out, ReadyRest is perfect for anyone who wants a little extra support in the field. If you've ever experienced arm, shoulder, or back pain while carrying a shotgun, ReadyRest is your solution. ReadyRest keeps your shotgun safely pointed up, ready to shoulder. It's the ideal companion for those long days in the field, giving you confidence to go the distance without tiring. Get ReadyRest now and take your hunting experience to the next level. Visit ReadyRest.com to grab your ReadyRest today because everybody deserves a break. It's interesting. I want to get into um, how far you've learned that they'll travel, but I have to imagine with this big operation and all the effort that you've put into it, can you put a, like if, if the state said, we want to bring quail back everywhere, you could probably tell them it's going to cost you X amount of dollars per covey. I can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, no. Have you ever tried to figure out how much an investment goes into it. And I'm only asking that because you've created a recipe that I believe other people are trying to follow, you know? And so the effort, the labor, the, the dollars that go into it. I mean, if we look big picture, what does that really mean for America and for the South and for Bob whites? Well, you know, I don't know what it means to anybody other than me, but I got a goal of where I want to go. And I want to leave it in, in, in a state that when I'm gone, it's still here in some kind of conservation reserve or something. And uh, and farm it just like we do. We, we took our best farm ground, put drainage ditches on the hills to control the water flow. We farm our best ground. And then the marginal ground we put in, in habitat. And uh, <clears throat> and it doesn't. I got into uh, the release program just to try to generate some income to offset what we spent. And how long have you been running the the release program? Probably started it uh, 
built this lodge 2009, probably 2005 or something like that. Okay. Been doing it, been it 18, 20 years. And when I say release program, it'd be like the shooting preserve side of it, right? Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I think the, the, the amount of people that come through this operation, I mean, do you feel comfortable saying, you know, like what this preserve looks like? Or, I mean, Todd, maybe you can speak to a little bit more about what that part of your operation is. Yeah, so the preserve is, we've probably got 600 acres of preserve. Uh, uh, no, it wouldn't be that much. Not quite? It'd be four or 500 acres, I guess. Yeah. So, so it's a not a small portion of the property, but it's just a portion of the property. And, and, and like what he said, the preserve is great. It gives us an opportunity to, to meet guys like you. It gives us an opportunity to, to, inter- hunters to, to interact yeah. with, with bird hunters, the people that are passionate about what we do. But the backbone of it is to fund what we're really here for, and that's the conservation. Gotcha. And people come from everywhere. Uh, everywhere. To, everywhere. To quail hunt down here. So you've got photos hanging up on your wall, of you riding horseback, Mr. Jimmy. And I haven't seen any horses here yet. Where, where have they been hiding? They're here. We, we've got them kind of scattered out all over the place, but, but we've, we've got them here. Do you ever go back and do any of those horseback hunts still? I keep saying I'm going to get on a horse this spring, but I hadn't done it yet. Okay. But the best times I had horseback hunting with three or four dogs, where I'd ride all day and follow the dogs, <clears throat> and that's the way it's supposed to be. Is that how you grew up hunting quail? Yeah. And where did you have access to enough land to ride that long to go find quail? Well, if you're following dogs, you, it doesn't take a lot of land to keep you out all day. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've hunted on horseback in the prairies up in, uh, let's see, Nebraska mm-hmm. and South mm-hmm. Dakota, and that's for sharp-tailed grouse and prairie chicken. Yeah, we don't, have, we don't have the area you got in the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh we got a lot of customers that go to Texas hunting and they talk about how many quail they see and how far they walk. But they, they walk, they walk as much as this old place. Right. So, um, you've got these quail that come back, you've got people doing research here and you're learning about the bird, right? You're mm-hmm. learning that you're, you're spreading quail beyond your, your property and you're a feeder system, essentially. How far and how do you know how far these quail are traveling after they're they're born on this property? Wild birds. Well, we the university two or three years ago trapped a lot of birds, put radio collars on, okay. and they were surprised that some of them were eighteen, twenty miles from here, and uh, uh, they didn't realize they'd go that far. So, it, and I I got with Doctor Bergen and I put an endowment over there for quail research. And we had a couple other sizable, a lot more than I put in it. We got about $2 million in a quail endowment for him to use to our uh, graduate students to do work. And he's not doing work just for me. He's doing it for a lot of people. He goes over to Alabama and got two or three big operations around the state that he works for. And he'll come in and, and, and develop a plan for them, tell them what they need to do. And, uh, uh, it, and it's, it's, it's beginning to grow on it. And the idea you know, is maybe you build a highway between this 3,000 acre place and this place with 300 acres and a place with 80 acres, but birds travel uh, because they will move. So when they leave your property, do they ever come back? Uh, probably not. Huh. But, make you mad? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, what I want is somebody else raising birds to send me some of theirs. Right. Yeah, return the favor I've a little I've got bit. nobody doing that yet. Sure. Do you have locals around here that come over and thank you? Do they understand <laughs> that you're you're basically uh, helping? I, I get a lot more credit than I should. I was at church one day, and a fellow got a little farm out Western part of Canada. He came up to me. He said, I got a covey of birds I saw the other day under a brush pile. And he said, I see a big old hawk sitting on a tree, and I'm going to kill that son of a bitch before he gets my birds. And he said, I'm not going to hunt my birds. I just loved him. Right. We went through a period of time that you never heard a quail whistle. And when I hired this biologist work from, I said, I want a picture of a, a cock bird sitting on a Bodoc post whistle. And I got it on the wall and they took it one day for me. And, uh, but it used to be just 
I had them at my house. I live in town. Oh, I got I got acres in town. And uh, at one time, I had a couple of birds. I can remember when I was well married, my wife's grandfather lived out there. He had about 80 acres, and there's a couple of cubs. You can hunt, you can hunt birds right there. But they're gone. Now, now my yard's covered up with deer. They're almost a nuisance. And he's giving you some credit there, isn't he? Well, they're giving me more credit than I deserve. Yeah, but well, I think it's. I, 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 I disagree I, with that. Yeah, I, I uh, might. I might be jump a little. In here. I, I might be a little eccentric about it too. Well, being being humble is a is a great thing, and you know, if other people can brag on your behalf, Todd, I think you can brag on his behalf, right? One of, one of my favorite things about Mister Jimmy and, and the way he manages this place. First off, everybody, that's the the, the popular question is the first one you ask. How old are you? <laughs> and yeah, and, and and so when he says eighty six, uh, look at the things he's doing at eighty six. The things he's doing at eighty six don't benefit him; they benefit me and and my generation. Uh, they they benefit folks like me and you. We establish native grasses. It takes three to five years to establish that. He's eighty six. Uh, when I'm eighty six, I want to be. I I sent the picture. If, you, of, if you're eighty six, yeah. I'm going to do it. I want to do it. That's a goal. So I took a picture of you riding on a horse with a cigar, and I believe there was a dog next to you, and it's just iconic. It's hanging on your wall here. A bunch, I mean, whoever your photographer is has captured some incredible moments here, but I sent it to some buddies back home. and said, this is what I want to be when I grow up. My favorite thing about him is at 86 years old, he drives us to plant trees, sawtooth oaks. Uh, he, he drives us to to burn and manage grasslands that, that take years to develop. Uh, he, he'll never see that sawtooth oak mature. Think about that for a minute. He's put in his time and his dollar to, to manage things that he may not see. We're working on a, a multi-million dollar dog kennel right now with Mississippi State. It's going to take years to come to fruition. He's doing that for my generation of bird hunters. He's doing that so that my generation of bird hunters in Mississippi where, where a good bird dog's hard to come by, will know where to go to find a top-notch bird dog, a top-notch sporting dog of any kind. So have you... Have we, you we're talking about yeah. a kennel project, that, and I did want to talk about it. So <clears throat> I'm giving Mississippi State the land up here. <clears throat> and we're talking about a hunted dog kennel. It'd be a sporting dog's only. Mississippi State was, and they're just 18 miles from here. Uh, and they've got a great vet school, but they'll have a they'll have a vet here. They use graduate students to do the work. They have exam rooms, classrooms, operating rooms, uh, uh, confinement areas for dogs. And Purina's already made a sizable contribution to it. And within I think two weeks or three weeks, we're going to St. Joe with Mississippi State folks. And Benny's going to manage it. Uh, architect Purina wants to fine tune things. They think they can save us a little money and a few things in there that they've proven. They're extremely excited about the research they do. And uh, they're even talking about taking each dog and weighing the feed that dog and seeing how they respond in the field. It, a lot of people don't realize a bird dog is a, a number one athlete. You might walk three miles and they might, they might run 18 miles. Mm -hmm. And they not only do it one day, they do it five days a week. And, uh, and they're just looking at all, and, and they're looking at the, the joint problems they have. And uh, it's because these dogs, these dogs work. You just don't realize it. We were somebody the other day, and he, he had something to track it. And we'd walked about three miles, the dog had run 18 miles, and the dog never stopped. And that's, <clears throat> it, it'll, it'll put Mississippi State's vet school on the map for being on the cutting edge of uh, sporting dog work. Is there anywhere else that does anything like that down here? We hadn't found anywhere in the country that does it. Yeah. There's nothing like this. It's, 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 it's nothing like it in the United States. There's also. And we'll, we'll furnish the dogs for, for their work. We'll train dogs there. And we'll probably have a lab breed in there and a cocker spaniel breed in there that's doing flush dogs. And uh, <clears throat> it won't, won't only be for us, but it, it'll, be, uh, it'll be a very significant. And they're talking about a big outdoor COVID area. They have demonstrations in, and, and, and uh, uh, like Ronnie Smith comes over every year and does a clinic on bird dogs. 
uh, uh, two or three other people do that. It'll, it'll be the epicenter of, of, of uh, sporting dog health. Uh, you have a great team, and they all have dogs. You know, we came down here, and we brought dogs as part of the Hank Hunt. The people that came to hunt with us down here, um, all but one brought at least one dog. And so your guides kind of just came and showed us a place and let our dogs go out there, but they also have dogs. And I ask all kinds of questions because I'm just curious, you know, I'm trying to soak in everything. And I, I just see such a variety of dogs here, you know, and I, in my mind, pictured a big running pointer, maybe a setter. But one, one of your guides said that he thinks labs are the most common dogs down here for bird dogs. Is that? No, that's not. No, they're not the most common bird dogs. So. What's the most common down here then? Probably the uh, German shorthair. The German shorthair for for upland dogs. The German shorthair down here, and well, and there's and there's quite a few English pointers. The the German shorthair, it was a trend dog for a long time, and 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 so a lot of people jumped on that trend, but they just happen to make great bird dogs and and pretty good pets. Um, what he's probably referring to as a lab is is probably six or seven, maybe eight out of every ten households. That have a dog have a lab is it a bird dog or is it a <laughs> right a, right a, a, but a lot of guys have got really good labs for fleshing and retrieving yep. and uh, uh i didn't realize how many different dogs there were and i was really shocked when i saw this italiano dog today yeah the broncos it's like, like a bloodhound <laughs> right and he goes out to end point whenever that man hunter schwinn arrives somewhere everyone sees his dogs and they just can't help but go over and look at them mm -hmm. We're trying to convince Mr. Jimmy to get us a couple for the lodge. Yeah? Well, <laughs> I don't think he's on board yet, but <laughs> you ask him the story on how it came to be. It's it's fascinating, but he had to send money over to Europe, yeah. Hungary, and hope that a dog arrived on the plane. He's like, it's the most bizarre thing, but I've done it every time, and a dog has arrived every time. So he's on his fourth now, and he has a little puppy here, and I just got to hunt with him again today with the puppy and with Mona, the uh, I drove down where y'all were shooting the lease. Yeah. And I drove by his truck, and those dogs sitting there focused on what y'all were doing, yep. looking at the witness. Yeah. The first couple shots, Mona came out yeah. because he leaves the, the back of that window wide open yeah. so right. they can hop out if they want. So she, I mean, the dogs are going nuts because all the guns are going off. But you did bring up Halise. So that's another thing that you've added to this place here. I had never heard of Halise until, to, you know, a couple days ago before we were coming down. But can you explain what in the world is Halise? Because it's amazing. Uh, I can say it's tough. <laughs> I it is say, that. I would but agree. Halise, as I understand it, they banned pigeon shooting in uh, Belgium, maybe, or somewhere over there, back in the 80s, or maybe back in the 60s. And so they, they, they built these Halise machines to replicate boxbird pigeons. And it's, and it's close to it. So you got the five boxes out there. You got the same fence that you got in Boxbird Pigeon. And you you get up there and... It's kind of for somebody in the Midwest that has never heard of it. You're, picture you're on a trap range. You're going to go shoot a round of trap. Yeah. Or not even sporting clays, like a round of trap. Right. There's boxes in front. Yeah. But it's not even close to that. It's the closest thing to shooting a live bird without having a live animal involved. It, it's totally unpredictable. It, it's it's totally instinctive shooting, and it takes a lot of dedication. I didn't mean to jump on you there, but I just wanted to paint a picture as you were describing it, that you're standing on this concrete slab looking out into the grass, yeah. and there's boxes. So you've got five, five boxes. boxes. And you get up there, and you push a button. It's all automated. They start pouring. They, they run it at probably four or 5,000 RPM. And then you say pull a go to hell or whatever you want to say, <laughs> and they go. But it's one box. You never know which one is coming out of. And if you had the same box three times, you'd have three different presentations. Amazing machine. Oscillate up and down, right and left, and you never know where it's going to go. And you get a little wind like you had today, that just adds more to it. Right. It can go up. It can go down. It can go back up again. Yeah. It's like a helicopter. I, I know the one guy standing there came out and looked like it was going to hit the ground. It just goes out and gets to the fence and just hopped over so he you just, watched my first round. He didn't know what to do. So yeah, he, I was, just, you watched my first round when I shot. And yeah. so you, you get six rounds and you go yeah. through it and everybody in the group gets a shot. You get mm -hmm. five 
five. Uh, they're cl- they're not clays. That's, they call that a crank. Five. And, uh, you got a thirty bird race, and it's made up of six cranks of five birds. Okay. So you shoot five, then you go to another place and shoot five. Gotcha. So my first five, I went zero for five. Yeah. That's but, I, but Todd, but, it's not how you start; I, it's I, how you finish. I will right. say, I saw, I can testify, he did not finish that way. Go ahead and tell our listeners. I, I saw <laughs> Travis here with a twenty gauge, which automatically puts him at a handicap. Yeah. Really? That's it's, weird. It's a twelve gauge game. It's okay. it's a it's a one ounce twelve gauge game. Okay. A, a pretty fast shell for a lot of guys. They, they're shooting some speedy stuff. Uh, and, but I saw Travis with that twenty gauge uh, finish on four for five. I, my, my year is made right there. I will be honest with you. I didn't think I was going to hit anything after the first one. Cause it starts out. I don't know how far. What, what are we? 26, 20, 26 meters? meters. Okay. And so you're at a fair distance to begin yeah. with and it's going away. So you, you have very little time. Well, we've got several guys now that been shooting here enough. They, they go on, they go into the national doing well. They go into the world and doing well. The Ken came in third in the world. Right. It was even the guy uh, that he's was a local. Today? No, he's a local guy. Oh, okay. Uh, got another local guy just started last year. He went to Stockton, California, shot a twenty nine, won the whole deal. So, we, we got some dedicated shooters just growing. Can you say what's your best round of thirty? You've hit a thirty. No, no, no. no I had no. no what's <laughs> what's, what's, what's your, your best, best round? Yeah. My best round was a twenty seven. Really? <laughs> and I've been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, what's yours? I don't know. I, I I don't think I've shot a twenty seven. I think I flirted with a twenty five somewhere in there. Okay. Uh it's it's one of those games if you want to be good at it, you gotta do it regularly. It it you don't just take off six months and pick it back up. Yeah, that was it was fascinating. So yeah, my first five shots, um, you get two shots at everyone in the air. I think it's very rare to hit it on your second. You have to hit it on the first one, is what I think we as a group came to figure out there. But you can't rush it. You have well, to. Well, I told I told your host. I said it'll get better as it goes. It's intimidating at first. It is. You finally get in the groove, and you, and and the more you shoot it, the better you get. But you you'll be shooting pretty good, and you'll have one of those days just everything just falls off the wagon. You can't hit you can't hit the side of a barn. There's a large portion of it that's 100 percent mental. You have to focus to shoot at least successfully. Yeah, and I think you know. So I, I, they sent me up first, and you know, no right. pressure. But everybody's watching the cameras rolling, and I didn't. I actually didn't get to see the example get flung out in the air. So I walk up, and oh my, just goodness. blind. Like, I mean, yeah, I was nervous. So I went zero for five, and then I go back up the second round again, and I'm like, oh, don't make a fool of yourself again. And I got one out of five. And then the next time I got two and then the next time I got three and then I got three and then I ended on four out of five right. and I just feel like a million bucks right but now. But you could go back down there and shoot it all night. And I probably wouldn't hit anything all it, night. It's an addiction. <laughs> it, it's an addiction. And it's it's so funny. Maybe the good scores are what drive the addiction, but you'll see a guy come in here and shoot a high number, a, a 27, 8, or 9. And then we'll see him every day for the next two weeks. And, and he, may, he may not even get in the 20s. So this came from Europe, right? The yeah, game? It's, it's, that's that's what I understand. These, these machines, I think, come out of Italy. Okay, gotcha. And uh, anybody else around have them? Well, the uh, Providence Hill and Jackson's putting in two rings. Okay. Like down there. Next closest one is in Birmingham, I guess. Selwood. That's where we we went over there one day. With a good friend of mine who shot with me a lot did did a lot of work with me building this tower of designed it. And uh, we shot a lease. I couldn't even come close to hit one. It's it's not the perfect ring, not not regulation size and all. Uh, and Benny, I think hit one. He hit four or five. All the way back, he said, "We got to have one of those most fun I've ever had in my life." This guy, this is just the best, just pure shooter I've ever seen. Wing shoot. Yeah. He kept worrying me and worrying me, and I told him, "I said, Stephen, I said I'm building a kitchen. I can't." can't afford that anyway he finally convinced me to do it we built it and we we did it privately and built one ring it was a success built a second ring and it was a success after the first year he went to went to rome to the world as an amateur and came in i don't know third in his class and uh he's the best low gun shooter i ever saw he 
He never, he never, everybody else shoots fixed, fixed mouth. He, he just shot low gun at the same time. But if, if it flew, he just loved to shoot at it. And then the third year, we were building the third ring, and damn, he fooled out and died on me. And, uh, but, uh, and then now, right now, we got six rings plus a practice field. We got the best facility in, in the United States, I would imagine. Wow. At this wow. point. It, it was we, a lot. We hosted the Nationals here twice, didn't we? Yes, sir. We hosted it in 18 and again in uh, 22. And then we got it again in 25. Right. We'll try to post a couple of videos on our social media pages just to give an example of what this game is. I'm sure if somebody's listening, they can go to your site, prairiewildlife.com, and probably see some examples of what this game is or research it online. I recommend doing it because it is. It's it takes sporting clays to a whole nother level. And I mean, everyone there was like, Oh my gosh, how do we get one of these around yeah. us somewhere in the Midwest or up north or you know, we've had the the more I'm around than you think and they're popping up. There's one over in Atlanta, one down South Alabama. I think it's one up here around Huntsville. Uh I don't know about Huntsville. I know it's one in Nashville. It's it's I, I dare to say it's probably the fastest growing shotgun sport in America right now. I believe uh, it because of, of that right there. Yeah, I believe it. And just shooting sports have, have exploded in the country. Absolutely. Well. So Absolutely. you add a new kind of shooting sport to one of the fastest growing segments in America. I mean, obviously it makes sense. There's no question that we're living through a strange winter this year, but that next Arctic blast can hit at any moment. One thing that many of us still need to prepare for in our outdoor adventures is heat. Mr. Heater is the king at bringing heat into the wildest places. I've used a Mr. Heater buddy heater for years when I go ice fishing, camping, and when I bring my kids out hunting in the deer blind or duck and goose blinds to keep them comfortable enough to enjoy the experience. One thing that I've really noticed lately is the cost of all those one pound propane tanks that run my buddy heater. The price has skyrocketed. That's why Mr. Heater launched a new product called the Fuel Keg. The Mr. Heater Fuel Keg allows you to fill your own one-pound propane tanks directly from your own propane sources at home, like a 20-pound tank. It takes about 60 seconds to fill, and it's really easy to use. The Fuel Keg comes with its own adapter kit, and for obvious safety reasons, you'll want to make sure that you follow the directions they provide. If you use this kind of heat for your outdoor adventures, the Fuel Keg is a big deal that can save you a lot of money and save hundreds of thousands of those one-pound propane tanks from making it into our landfills. Find the full lineup of Mr. Heater items along with their new fuel keg at mrheater.com. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma Trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. Now's a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. Let's get back into the, the quail. Um, Mr. Jimmy, how many days a week do you go quail hunting? How many what? How many days a week do you think you go quail hunting? Well, right now about twice a week. Okay. Sometimes three times. I can't. Uh, <clears throat> I, have, I have to have a little rest in between. Okay. And when you go, what does a hunt look like for you? How far are you walking out there? Who do you take into the field? And what's your bird dog of choice? Yeah, I, I don't, we, we'll go out and spend about three hours walking. I got a guy 
<clears throat> See, I heard it was somebody this week. Who'd I go with? This you know, with Cole. Huh? Cole? Yeah, but who, who was I shooting with? Uh, a day ago, I can't remember. The guy at Ellis Still? Oh, yeah, yeah. Good friend of mine. We used to hunt together a lot. Then he had grandkids and didn't. he hadn't been hunting in two, three years. At any rate, I got another guy coming in Friday afternoon from uh, Atlanta. He comes over four or five times a year, maybe five or six. We usually have a side a four ten race side by side. We both shoot four ten. Then I got a guy from Memphis coming in next week. He'll be here one afternoon, spend the night, and shoot the next day. And I'll uh, and it's like you know I went out and shot two or three times today. But <clears throat> I can't walk as far as I used to. Uh, but I'd but, say you're still doing amazing to be out there absolutely. for a three hour walk. Yeah, out there now. If you have your choice, are you going after? the wild quail out here that you've raised or do you feel like you don't want because of all the work you've put in that you well, want well, to I hunt them a little bit not not as much as I should I, I got a side by side we uh hunt wild birds because you got to cover so much ground we've got we got two or three dogs that are, that are wide ranging dogs what are their breeds I'd rather do it on horseback but I don't, don't do that anymore yeah what English pointers what's that English pointers English pointers yeah I, I just envisioned it. Like they're, that's, they're, yeah, they're hard charging, big running. Yep. Solid bird dog. Yep, definitely. Um, Todd, how about you? Do you get out and hunt or are you too busy here? I don't anymore as much as I, I'd probably like to. Uh, my first season kind of over, overlooking the guides, it, it was a bare knuckle brawl to get through the season. I was hunting four or five days a week and trying to do my, my job in the office and, and, and outside as well. And I've finally it's taken a couple of years and we've got a really good team of guides put together. So, so now I get to hunt when I want to and not so much when I have to. And that makes a big difference. Uh, but, but I, I probably should hunt more than I do now, but I, I'll go out a few times a month. Yeah. What kind of dogs do you like that? I didn't have the chance to spend any time in the field with you. I wish I would have, but what kind of dogs do you like to run? So I personally, I've got a short hair that's spoiled, absolute rotten. <laughs> and, and somebody told me one time it's hard to have a perfect bird dog and a perfect pet. And that's probably true. Mine's probably a little better pet than bird dog. Yeah. Uh, but, but I like to grab a couple of dogs out of the, out of the kennels over here and, and run them. And that's a mix, uh, of, of short hairs and, and English pointers. Okay. One of my favorite things in the world to do, and, and it just kind of happens naturally is, is to get an old veteran dog that's kind of slowed down and, and maybe a little past its prime and get a young dog that's really amped up and hard charging that, that probably needs to be reined in a little bit. And just pair them up. It's dogs' natural behavior. Uh, they're a pack animal. They're canines. They're gonna they're gonna team up, work together as a team nine times out of ten. That's just one of my favorite things to do is take an old dog and a young dog and watch them figure it out. What does the hunting season look like here? When does it start and end? We go from October the first to March the thirty first. And you just are every day, seven days a week. One hundred and eighty two days. Wild. I love it when those duck hunting guides say, "Man, it was sixty days of hard work." Yeah, we're we're eating lunch on sixty days. Um, Mr. Jimmy, what do you want to see this place become? Well, I'd love to see it become the number one sporting estate in the country, particularly in quail hunt. And, and we got a few other, if you hadn't seen a tower, we saw a tower up on the hill. We got, and I've had a couple of guys from New York down here two, three months ago shooting. It said it's the only place I know of in the United States that you can go practice to shoot high birds in England. So you got a 40-foot tower, you're down the hill about 30 feet, maybe 40 feet, and the bird's up 20 feet above that, so most of them are 100-150 foot shots. And it, it's a challenge, you know, shoot pheasants. And uh, I've never I've never been able to keep up with it. It's just, I, I, I hadn't learned to lead them enough yet. But we got that, we got the, uh, the line shoot where we shoot plays over some cedars, and we also shoot pheasants over some cedars. Uh, but what I would, I would love to see it in perpetuity. And, uh, I've sold some land south of here, uh, to a solar farm. I'm trying to buy a little more land north here. I'll end up with about 4,000 acre block of land right in the middle of all this development. And I don't ever want it to be anything in this. Is there anything encroaching on it that you're worried about that might change what it is today? Do what now? Is there anything development-wise encroaching on this well, that might change it? Well, you know, we sold land to a solar farm and some land west of us went to an industrial deal and they got an industrial development over there. But 
my goal is to probably put it in a conservation easement when it stays in perpetuity. My yeah. kids, my kids think I'm crazy sometimes. Yeah. But uh, if I do all this, they'll get some money out of it. My daughter works out here part time. My oldest daughter's in California. She's a conservationist just like I am. She's she's got a, a preserve for African hoofstock hmm. and uh, zebra and giraffe and I don't know some kind all kind of antelope. Does and, she uh, like coming back here and and does she quail hunt with you? Uh, well, she yes, she does. It's just it's just a hard to get back from the West Coast to get here. She comes back twice a year. Okay, but uh, but she you know both of them are raised up out here, rode horses here, uh, and. They've got an affinity for it, but but not like I have. Gotcha. We have a a lot of bird hunters that listen to this show, and they travel around the country, and they hunt wild birds on public land, mm-hmm. and that is something that, um, you know, is near and dear to so many people's heart. And there are places in America where it's, you know, the opportunities are more plentiful, and there are places where a lot of those opportunities have disappeared. You know, and for a public land quail hunter in Mississippi, is is the future bleak? It'll 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 never be back like it was. We've developed too much land and got too much timber. Uh, <clears throat> it just takes so much dedication to bring them back. But but with the work that Mississippi State's doing and, and some of the conservation programs and and quail farmers working awful hard to get people signed up for conservation deals, they it, it I think it's I think it's going to grow. And like a lot of things, we'll never be back like we were at one time. I mean, I came up with, you go out any day on anybody's place, you know, and find four, five, six coveys of birds. Go out on the weekend horseback, find 10 or 12 coveys. That's, that's, that, I don't think that'll ever come back. Do you have any favorite memories from your lifetime spent out here? Favorite. A favorite memory or story that you've told? I bet you've been asked hundreds of times. Uh, I got too many, I guess. I I love I love horseback riding with the kids. We up on the hill. I, I named it for my oldest daughter that killed in a car wreck. We used to ride horses up there. But uh, you know, and I've 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 been on every foot of this place all my life. And you know, I had a cousin that uh, was very successful, and he went to Chicago. and ended up at a CEO of a major five hundred company, and he. He asked me one day, he says, what do you think about me moving to Chicago? I said, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even think about leaving Westport. But he went on and did great things. I was just satisfied with the way I was. It's like everybody used to say, well, let's go to Texas hunting. I said, I'll hunt here. I said, we can't find as many birds. I said, yeah, but these are my birds. Yeah. You've built something pretty special here. Um, appreciate you taking some time tonight to sit down and, and to share a bit of your journey. Is there anything that I should have asked you? I think you've covered the, covered the spectrum pretty good. Okay. Um, Todd, what what do you want this place to be? It's moving real quickly to where I'd, I'd love to see it. And, and for me, it's something I'd love to see it be something that my generation of guys can enjoy like his generation of guys did. I, I grew up hunting and farming, and my childhood way of life was very similar to his childhood way of life minus a few things and one of those few things is quail. I was 20 years old before I was introduced to a quail and you can fall deeply in love with it in a short amount of time and I'd, I'd love to see the days of bird dogs and dog boxes come back in Walmart parking lots because people fall in love with this sport and I think prairie wildlife is the epicenter of that. Well, add to that a little bit back in the 50s the Westport wasn't near as big as it is today, but it seemed like half the town had a pickup truck with a dog box on it. That was that was the spot you'd, you'd leave in the afternoon to go out quail hunt. Yeah. By the seventies, it was going down pretty hard. By the eighties, nobody even had a bird dog. In. But another aspect of this that I didn't anticipate is the relationships you build with people. Every year, we've seen our clientele grow up. Up, upscale, and I told this guy I used to hunt with a lot. And I said, I said, Frank, you know, I got more friends outside of Mississippi than I got at home. 
We said, well, that's right. So a lot of my friends have retired. Some of them died off. And, uh, but I've got all these people that we got guys from California been coming in seven, eight years, folks in Florida. Uh, and, uh, every year we're picking up more and more people and you develop that personal relationship with people. That, uh, and to me, a quail hunter is a different animal than, than, than a deer hunter or a rabbit hunter or something else. They're all gentlemen. And it's and it's a gentleman's sport. I I just I just wish I could still get on a horse and ride all day like I used to. Yeah. Well, you're you're still getting out there, and you're still hunting, and you're still enjoying the land, and you've poured a lot of blood, sweat, tears. Yeah. I, I just get around ride ride around the place every day. I take people on a tour. I said, I really appreciate you doing this. I said, I appreciate the opportunity to do it. Yeah. He was going whether or not they went with him. <laughs> <laughs> he goes every day. You oh, know, one. I, I was going to ask the last question here to Mr. Jimmy, but I think instead I'm going to ask you, Todd, what does this gentleman here mean to you and to everybody else in this area? It's hard to put in words. Um, Cause he's a role model to a lot of people to, to not only take a chance on something that where the, the deck was stacked against him. It's, it's no secret to the locals here who, who Jimmy Bryan is. Uh, he didn't have to do anything. It, it was the passion and the fire inside of him to restore the habitat and to chase the quail again. And, and he's a living example. He's here every day. He's not, he's not fibbing with you. He's here. Seen it. He's here every day. Yeah. Uh, rain or shine. He eats breakfast here probably more than he does at home with his wife. And, and that's a testament to his work ethic and his passion. And, and it's an addiction that, I see people fall in love with just the same as he does. And one of my favorite things to see in, in recruiting guides, that's one of my favorite favorite parts of my job is recruiting new guides. And I go out after, it's a characteristic that I chase after. It's it's not a look or a money statue or anything like that. I go after people that are just avid outdoorsmen. Zero percent of them, nine times out of ten, are quail hunters. But I'll approach somebody that's an avid turkey hunter or an avid duck hunting guide nine times out of ten, and I'll say, hey, why don't you come give it a try for a season? And the guy he was talking about that he went with earlier this week, uh, his name's Cole Riddle. He was a duck guide. House full of labs, truck full of camo, all that. You guys hunted with him today. And uh, he gets here, and he goes on about three weeks of bird hunting, and he's like, dude, this is great. And he calls me one night, and he goes, you're not going to believe it. What are you talking about? I just bought a little short hair puppy, eight, <laughs> eight weeks old. Fast forward three weeks after that, he calls me one night. This was two weeks ago, maybe last week. He says, man, I may have to sleep on your couch. And I was like, why? He said, somebody offered to give me an English pointer. So I took it. And I said, you didn't go so happen to tell your pregnant wife at seven months pregnant you were bringing it home, did you? He goes, it's a lot harder for them to say no when they can pet it than it is right. to say no when on a picture on the phone. <laughs> so it's seeing it's seeing people fall in love with it, and yeah. and and not that it's superior to. No, I'm going to take that statement back. It's superior to anything else you can do with a gun in your hand. Uh, duck hunting's great, and I've been fortunate to, to chase duck and deer and turkey all over the country. But spending the day behind a quality bird dog in some well managed habitat is second to nothing. Yeah, there's a different relationship you have with the dog. You're a team. Well, that's what I was going to say. We got most of these guys never quail hunting that we've got because there's no quail here. We've, I've seen them to grow up and develop, and they, some of them got two or three dogs, and that dog's part of the family. And they, they don't even get to shoot, but they just love getting out and working that dog and seeing the dog working. The relationship between the hunt and the dog and all is just, it's just, it's just out there. Well, Mr. Jimmy, I don't want to keep you from making it home to your wife. You've given us more time than you needed to. I, I am grateful that I've been able to come down and see your place. I've heard about it. It has been something that I just wanted to see for myself, and I feel really fortunate that I've been able to do that. Your entire staff here that you have put together has just been so welcoming to, to all of us down here, but but we appreciate you being here, and we love the people you brought. Well, I'll end it with they this. They all love the dogs. Yeah, we do. But I'll end it with this. Sitting out here overlooking the grass that you have out here, just over our, the other side of this building, I hear a whistle of a bobwhite. And the others in our group said, 
is that a bobwhite? Is that a, I think, is that a, like they can hear the whistle of a bobwhite. Yeah. Without all the work you've put in, that wouldn't have happened. Thank well, you. We've that got was a lot the of years of that. Yeah. That was the moment they were introduced to a drug they'll never forget. Yeah. It, it's, when it gets in you, you can't get it out of it. Prairie Wildlife, it's a special place. Thank you, Mr. Jimmy. Thank Appreciate you. everything. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. <laughs>